Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. I'm Kim Naoni. This is Mentorship Matters, a podcast that examines the current and future landscape of fundraising leaders and the power of inclusive mentorship in advancement. Today, I'm joined with my friend and somebody who I really respect, Dr. R. Bowen Lofton, uh, President Emeritus of Texas A&M University and former Chancellor of the University of Missouri. How are you doing, Bowen? Howdy. <laughs> We're here in Texas, Texas baking right now. It's 110 outside right now. <laughs> yes, you know, at times like this, I wish I was back in, uh, in in Las Vegas where it's 117, but, you know, there's it's that dry heat. You're not baking. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, you're prepared for it. You've got big AC systems in Las Vegas. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So let's jump right into it. As I was thinking about the topic of today, the power of candor, uh, there are very few people that I thought uh, I would talk to, and you are at the top of it. You have been at the top of some of the best universities in this country, and uh, you have a distinguished career. So let's talk about the best leaders that you have encountered in your career. What made them exceptional, and how did they inform your leadership style? Well, let me go back in time a bit. Uh, My dad would never be called by many people a leader, but he was my leader as my father, obviously. And uh, he was a man for whom honesty was central to his very being. And so my dad would never, ever tell a lie. He also was always somebody who shared everything he knew with everybody around him. And it endeared him to most people. He could walk into a room of strangers and walk out of a room of friends. That's the kind of person he was. I saw that growing up and I thought it was a natural thing until I got older and realized it was a rare thing he did. (laughs) Uh, He wasn't educated. He finished the sixth grade and his dad told him, you're 12 years old, time to go to work. And so that's what he did. And he always understood that he lacked opportunity because he lacked education, but he was intelligent uh, and he was an extraordinarily personable individual. And that's what I watched as an example growing up. So that's my, my first leader I would want to mention to you uh, going along. Uh, fast forward a bit. Uh, I, I'm blessed to have been, been able to work with, be mentored by an exceptional individual named Robert Savely, a man you never heard of. Uh, I just happened to go back in 2019 to his retirement party at the NASA Johnson Space Center. Uh, Bob Savely worked for the government for over 50 years. And uh, mostly NASA, he started off in the Air Force, uh, got out of the Air Force, went to to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, a school you may know well. (laughs) Oh, yes. Go Big Red. (laughs) Great people come from Nebraska. (laughs) uh, High school math and physics in a little rural high school in Nebraska. And NASA was stood up and they scoured the country for everybody they could find who knew math and physics. (laughs) And he got brought to Houston as a NASA employee, a civil servant and spent uh, about 48 years with the Johnson Space Center. And I was blessed to be in his mentorship, shall we say, uh, beginning back in the mid 1980s. Uh, I spent a summer, first of all, at NASA Johnson Space Center on some research programs that he led. 
And then that grew into much more over many, many years. For a decade, I was really there a great deal. And he became a, a great friend, but he first and foremost was a mentor to me. And a person who again was, was uh, honest with me in every way and taught me so many things. Uh, but he let me fail. He let me fail often. Mm-hmm. And then he'd pick me up and shake me a bit and let me understand with his insight how, why I failed and how I could really learn from that experience and, and move ahead. I was given the extraordinary opportunity to, to manage a project at the Johnson Space Center of some mm-hmm. consequence. Uh, it was software development work. And uh, I was given a team of really bright people. Mm-hmm. And but we had a very tight timeline and a very ambitious project. And so I, I sat down, it's my first big deal. I'm going to make this <laughs> thing work. I laid out a, a complete timeline of the project, daily milestones and and really thought I had my arms around it. And we started working on this project and every single day we got further behind. Oh and the further behind we got, uh, the more strident I became with my team. I was just really upset with this. How could they uh, you know, let me down this way? And not, not known to me, but Bob was outside the doorway every morning as we had our staff meeting. We had a morning staffing half an hour to kind of lay out the day's, day's project efforts. And Bob was out there listening to me, and he heard my sort of not-so-kind comments to my team. And after about a week of this, uh, he was waiting for me outside the, the room when the meeting ended. He said, come in here. Took me in his office, closed the door, and said, Bowen, I've got one thing to say to you. You need them more than they need you. Wow. And I just I stood there kind of dumbfounded for a minute and thought about that and realized, you know, he's right. These, these are really bright people. They know what to do. And I've been telling them what to do all along. What I hadn't been doing is listening. Mm-hmm. So I went back into the meeting the next morning and I said to them for the first time, tell me why you're behind schedule. Tell me why this is not working and just shut up. And they were sort of puzzled for a little bit, looked at each other and finally began to speak up. Well, that half of our meeting lasted two hours. And it really revealed a lot about me as a failed leader and about them as people who were really quite capable, but not enabled by me. And so from that day on, I spent much more time listening to them, asking them for advice, rather than telling them what to do. And guess what? We finished the project ahead of time, and it was quite successful but not because of me, because of them. And that was a primary lesson I had as a leader. As a faculty member, you just don't have much chance to lead. I mean, you, you're from the class, yes, a yeah. quote, but you aren't really leading. Uh, mm-hmm. Here I was in my first real opportunity to lead professionals to achieve a significant goal. And I just literally failed at that. I, I failed at it miserably. And Bob let me fail for a while then stood me up and with one phrase, with one phrase, you know, gave me a life lesson. And I'll never forget that. And there are many more stories could have, but he really yeah. was a great mentor for me. No, uh, that's going incredible. Forward, going forward in time, uh, I was blessed uh, at Texas A&M as president to get acquainted with uh, the late President Bush, Bush 41, we call him the 41st president of the United States. Great uh, man. He loved Texas A&M. He loved being here. And so because of my role, and his love of this place, 
where I'm at, at now, he, he was there a lot. He spent a lot of time at Texas yes. He had an apartment in the uh, Bush Library uh, on campus, and we were together pretty frequently. And a kinder man you will not find. Uh, I, I love, if I may interject, uh, sure. I love that photo of you, uh, late Bush 41 and Mrs. Bush uh, at what, whatever you guys call it at A&M. Is that the yell thing you do on, on Fridays? where Yell practice is called. Yes, yell Friday practice. Night, midnight. Midnight yes. yell practice. <laughs> that is an iconic photo. I mean, you look at that and uh, you could tell that spirit was just uh, something else with the president. Well, he just uh, was a very kind man. And he was extremely polite. He never raised his voice, uh, but I would watch him. Barbara wasn't quite that way. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, hear. I would watch his face when she would be uh, uh, getting off on something, which was pretty frequently. And he'd just kind of have this little pained expression on his face. <laughs> yeah. She was very blunt, very outspoken. And he was very, very kind. He got his message across, but in a very different way than she did. And I always enjoyed that. And we spent some time with them in Maine uh, many summers. Uh, they, they left here about uh, late April, uh, went to Maine to Walker's Point, a uh, family property there near Kenny Buckport. And we would usually stop in there for lunch once every summer and, and spend some time with them there. And he was truly relaxed there, really, really enjoying a place where he grew up. His grandfather bought that property. And so it's been a family for a long time. And, and he, he really enjoyed being there and enjoyed entertaining there. Very small house, but uh, nice to be on the, on their on their porch overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, having bad. That was a lot I of bet. fun. No, so as we go back to the lessons you learn from your, from your Johnson uh, Space Center times and then the lesson you learned from uh, the president, you know, clearly uh, as you look at higher education landscape and, uh, you know, we all work for you know, with departments, administration, all the different uh, cylinders of excellence, as one of my professors used to call them, uh, it really calls out for one's, you know, ability to be able to trust others, to be able to uh, have very candid conversation and uh, sort of uh, own up to when you don't have any answers. Because as you know, our colleagues, if you're, you, you want to be the smartest person in the room and, uh, you go out there and uh, try to approach uh, faculty, they're going to run you out of town like yesterday. And so as, as I think about those lessons that you learn, uh, how would you advise one university administrator slash fundraising guru on the best way to have a candid but productive relationship, not just with the president, but with the different cylinders of excellence uh, from uh, faculty uh, chairs and, and all those folks while respecting each other's role in shared governance? Well, a couple of points up front, then I'll, I'll try to follow your, your path here and, and, and give you some, some insights that I've learned. Uh, first of all, professors profess. <laughs> That's a fundamental. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and because of that, they don't listen well. I mean, they listened well when they were students. Most of them were good mm -hmm. learners, uh, good learners from reading and from listening both. Uh, and unfortunately, we tended to move into our roles as professors and become those we uh, taught us. And so we were successful learning in a certain style, and we thought that was the right style, but not the one that normally works for most people. 
And so one of the hard lessons you try, you should learn and try to learn as a professor is, is uh, don't do it the way you were, you were yeah. taught, <laughs> if you can possibly avoid that. And, and one of the key issues here is, is we're taught to lecture, to talk, and not to listen. And, and listening is how uh, you learn and how you gain the confidence of other people. Right. So one of the hard lessons of my life early on was learning to listen again. I, l- I listened as a, as a student. I was a humble young student at Texas A&M as undergraduate, mm-hmm. Rice as a graduate student there. And uh, I listened. But then when I became a teacher, I thought I had to teach the way I was taught. And so I talked a lot <laughs> and uh, didn't listen nearly as much. And that was something that I, I've had to make myself think about every day almost in my life since I uh, understood what my weaknesses were, among other things, that listening is something it's just not easy to do, especially if you think you know everything uh, about a particular topic. And so learning to listen is critical. uh, And that listening process builds trust automatically. Uh, When you listen to people and don't just interrupt them and just don't don't, uh, uh, basically bedazzle them with your own wisdom and skills and such. uh, Yes. That's, man, they become they become really quite uh, trusting in you. Uh, Absolutely, you're a listener, and you make your you ask your questions, you make your comments in a in a smaller way as you possibly can, and that process will build trust. And in the world of you live in of advancement, yes. that is absolutely critical. I mean, listening to a donor is the most important thing you can do. Donors oftentimes will tell you, uh, well, they'll ask you, so what can I give? University, mm-hmm. what can I do for the university? And you've got to say, don't give them a lot of this right away. Let them begin to articulate something that they care about. You want their passion. You want to find out where they want things to happen. And they won't oftentimes tell you that without you're giving them the time and the patience to be able to gather thoughts and to build that trust with them. So I've sat down and spent hours and hours with a, with a donor before they wrote a single check uh, and try to listen and ask the right questions so they would reveal to me where their passion or passions were. And, and once you learn that, then you really can, can have a fairly straight pathway to getting the donation you're seeking. And you know that. I mean, everybody oh, yeah. in your Bingo. world who's successful has figured this out. Well, they wouldn't be where they are. Uh, I'll just mention off the side, faculty are terrible fundraisers. Uh, they, they, tend, they tend to want to say too much, uh, again, bedazzle you with their brilliance, and not really try to listen and try to really help people in their own way grasp what they're what they're about. Uh, so we just we end up we end up as professors doing a, a poor job of fundraising. Uh, my worst experiences were with engineers. I, I had many of them in my teams over the years. Engineers no are always <laughs> talking about what's wrong with something, not what's right with it. Uh, they're trying. They're fixers. They they, they solve problems. Yes, absolutely. And they, they, they walk a group into a demonstration and all they spend their time talking about is what's wrong with it <laughs> I was right with it and I had to really I had to finally hire people who were professionals at, at giving demonstrations I could not trust my engineers to do it because <laughs> they were always trying to fix the latest problem that's where their focus was and they assumed that the donor's focus was there too so back, back to the thread here the the idea of listening is so crucial to success in anything involving leadership but I think especially so in the world you live in, Ken, because uh, you have to really 
listened to your donor perhaps a long time. One of my good friends here at Texas A&M, a guy named Bob Walker, who literally wrote a book on fundraising. There are many. Yes, of he's a legend. There. He's a legend. But uh, Bob did this for a long time, beginning at Pepperdine and then at Texas A&M. He was the first full-time fundraiser ever hired at Texas A&M. <laughs> oh, wow. and, and, and Bob told me, I spent 25 years cultivating one donor, 25 mm-hmm. years waiting for the first check. So think about that patience. I mean, you and people like you are driven by performance measures that are easy. Uh, I've always thought the hardest two jobs in a university were enrollment management and fundraising because it's so countable. You can oh measure boy. it so You cannot easily. hide it. You can't hide <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and because of that, you're under the pressure all the time to be successful by the measure, which is obvious for you. Uh, how many bucks have you raised, Okay. And the patience to wait 25 years for the first check, that's pretty extraordinary. It and is. You know, Bob was, a, was able to do. And this day and time, it's hard to imagine that being, being possible. And I've sat beside of many fundraisers, and you know who I mean here, uh, one of mm-hmm. your old bosses, that, uh, that was always impatient about it, was trying to get to the bottom line very quickly. And it just really bothered me sometimes. With some folks, it worked. Well, the many, it turned them off. And that, that, fun, that donor could have, been, could have been a donor, but they weren't because we got in a hurry. And, and if they weren't willing to commit to an ask and, and deal with it right away, then he'd move on. And because uh, he was driven by the measurements. And I understand yeah. that. I'm not saying you can't, you shouldn't measure, but at the same time, you got to be reasonable and understand donors are very, very different people the huge spectrum of folks out there. Some are very precise and driven and, and very, very willing to make a decision quickly. Others take extraordinary amounts of time to make their minds up. And you've got to accommodate each and every one of them. That's your challenge there as a, as a, as a fundraiser. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, uh, you, you know, just a quick example here. This afternoon I was having lunch uh, with uh, somebody who, under the radar, I mean, you look at him, he's wearing cargo shorts, t-shirt, flip-flops, he came, to meet me on his electric bike. But this gentleman owns about half the county and most of his stuff is hidden. And as we're having a conversation, he tells me, you know, I grew up in Chicago without resources. My parents were poor and I learned how to invest in real estate and things like that. And I became very successful, but as I've become more successful, I noticed that everybody wants something from me. And so one of the quickest turnoff for me is when I meet someone, they are, they're looking at me and they hear that I own this block, I own that block. And they say, you know, I can, I can do this deal with you. Oh, can you give money to X charity and Y charity? He said to me, that's why I stick with other wealthy people. Because when I'm with wealthy people, we don't talk about money. We talk about impact. And I, 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 as I was sitting there, I said, you know what? Here's a lesson in somebody being candid and somebody explaining what makes them tick. And this is something that our, our profession, folks that do fundraising, needs to take at heart. When you're meeting somebody with high net worth, extreme wealth, everyone around them is looking for something. If you go there with a purpose to, identify, to understand, you know, what's their purpose in life? What are they trying to do? What, what makes them tick? And try to mirror to match that, marry that with the institution's priorities, and then it becomes more about how do we cure cancer? You know, how do we uh, uh, address uh, malnutrition? Well, we can talk about that, 
then we know at the end of it, once we figure out that this institution can address that issue, then it becomes the how, what can I do to help you achieve that conversation? And it's funny how that is something that, you know, people, people have forgotten about or tend to ignore because again, you're looking at, well, I got to, I got to close $200 million this year, 300. So by any means necessary, but I argue that if you, you know, rewire that and you think you're driven from a purpose perspective and you're able to communicate that with the donor in a good way, then you will get to the promised land sooner rather than later. You're right. You're right about that. I, you know, I, I've been involved in many asks, as you might expect. <laughs> and uh, I know in some cases what I do with a donor is not going to happen in my time. It'll be somebody after me. Uh, so you may, you may sow the seeds. Uh, you may begin the building of trust with a donor, but it may be long after you're gone that that donor yes. really comes forward and makes their contribution to the institution. That's reality. And I'm happy to plant a seed and watch somebody else water it and somebody else harvest it. That's okay. Uh, Absolutely. Unfortunately, some people believe they got to do all three. They, they've got to plant it, water it, and harvest it all three. And that's not going to be lending itself to patients uh, with the donors that want to have a time taken to really let them share with you in their own way what they really care about and let you behave appropriately with that knowledge as you go forward developing a, a, a contribution from them. That's what you need to do. Others are transactional and you get it done uh, and you're on, you're on your way. That's fine. And those you can mm -hmm. count right away. Yeah. Uh, but I realized that there are many uh, seeds I planted that I wasn't around to, to water or to harvest. And so that's the sort of thing that needs to be recognized uh, with some types of donors. Uh, you want to talk a bit about, I think, people. Yes, absolutely. Uh, hired, I've hired and unfortunately fired a number of people in my life. Uh, Never fun. As an executive, I normal I, president, uh, I usually had between 12 and 20 direct reports, which is probably too many, but I had those. And uh, here's where candor is so critical. Uh, I would tell anybody I hired that when I fire you, you won't be surprised. <laughs> we'll have had enough conversation. Uh, I don't believe in, you know, I've had to do yearly evaluations of all my reports. Yes, that's what you do. You have to, the HR yeah. people make you do it. That's okay. But I would tell people, you'll get feedback from me every time we're together. Every time the best we're way to do together, it. you'll get feedback. May not be a whole lot, but you'll get some. So if over a period of time, the feedback I give you is not really helping you modify your behavior and your activities, as I've mm -hmm. suggested through my feedback, uh, don't be surprised when one day I say, call you and say, it's over. Uh, uh, so you shouldn't be surprised about that. <laughs> I will have given <laughs> you ample feedback over a period of time to let you understand what you need to be doing. Uh, and if you can't act on that appropriately, well, don't be surprised if, if you get the door uh, shown to you at some point down the road there. I haven't done it a lot. I haven't fired that many. I've hired a lot more than I've fired. Many more have gone on to greater things. And that's one of the hard things about being a leader, Kim, is, is letting people know it's okay to go. Yes. It's okay. And uh, you, you've made a few moves in your career. And uh, we've talked about those moves and I've encouraged you, I think, as best I could when it seemed appropriate. Uh, 
So as a leader, don't make a person feel guilty because they're going to go on to another position. Uh, that's part of their trajectory. And yes. you should let them do that and let them know that you're happy that they're doing that, even though it hurts you. I mean, you're losing a key person, perhaps, in your team. But at the same time, that person is going to be going along the trajectory they want to follow. And that's critical for their future success and for their happiness. And, and we don't want to ever discourage that. So it's a hard thing as a leader to let people go and do it in a way, do it in a way when you don't make them feel guilty about leaving you. Uh, I've had many people just break down in tears because they were, they were moving on. They enjoyed working where they were and with me and others around us. But I would say to them, you know, you know where you need to go. You know the next steps in your career path. Don't ever worry about the place you're leaving. Think about the place you're going to. And, and, and you go, go with my blessing. That's, that's the main thing you can tell them right there. And, Even though it's the best it, thing. It may cost me something <laughs> in terms yeah. of hiring somebody else and getting things back on track again, uh, it is the right thing to do to let them know it's okay. It's okay to move on to other position. Yes, and, and I've been fortunate in my career where I've made those transitions in having leaders like yourself who encourage me to say, you know what, we can only provide X for you, but this opportunity is great for you, for your development, by all means, go ahead, go ahead, but don't forget about us. And, and that, that, that's the philosophy I try to maintain in what I do with my team. I always encourage them to, you know, to pursue uh, their dreams. If they need some opportunities, uh, some experiences added to their portfolio while they're with us, I'll do it to the best of my ability. But if they don't, uh, we can't provide that, then shame on us that I'll support them in whatever they're trying to do, wherever they're trying to go. I've made calls. I've done those kind of things. And so I try to focus when I build a team together, I try to focus on really vetting folks who are mission driven. And I say, as long as you're going to be with us here, just bring 100% of your effort and do the best that you can while you're with us, knowing that at some point they may want to go elsewhere and investing in them, whether it's uh, conferences, any kind of training and exposure, because at the end of the day, I think you'll be doing a great service to our field and to higher education advancement. If you have all these tentacles of people that came from AM or any other institution that are now leading programs across the country, leading way in, in sort of uh, uh, implementing those programs that are first class, that are world class, that focus on educational outcomes. I mean, that's just been my philosophy in really investing in people and, and just, uh, you know, understand that, hey, sometimes we may have to have uh, some, some tough uh, conversations, but like you, you know, it's not going to be a surprise. It's uh, every, every month we meet, I'll, I'll let you know how I think. And primarily, I want to know what you think about what we're doing. You know, what's the, what, what are we doing wrong? Or, what experiences are we not providing to you? And if we're not providing them, give me the opportunity to remedy that. If I can't, then we can have a different conversation. Yeah, I've been, again, blessed to be in, in good places where good people were, were, in pre were present and joined us over time. Uh, at Texas A&M, for example, when I was president there, uh, we reached the point where my my cabinet, if you want to call it that, that wasn't the right term there, but it was a cabinet, basically. My All my reports uh, were 50% male and 50% female. And that was the mm -hmm. first time it ever happened. And I think that probably hadn't happened 
sense. But my point is that that wasn't a, that wasn't a specific goal. But by hiring the right people, uh, we we got there. And I look back one day, I said, you know, this is interesting. Look look at who we have here working in our team here. Uh, and it was it was interesting to me to see that we'd achieved uh, diversity along one dimension anyway, without really looking at doing it as the primary goal. But it came about because we were hiring the best people, uh, the people that fitted well into our framework here and did, did what had to be done. Uh, the other thing I think is important is that people need to be given something to take with them as they move down their pathway here. So uh, mentoring is, is not something that we do well in the academy. Uh, we talk about it a lot. And probably the best example can be at the graduate level when you have a graduate student who's really working with you in a very, very uh, close way to solve some really hard problems and you're helping them get everything done. They have to get done to get their master's or PhD. That's a good mentoring role. And, and I've seen a mixture of abilities there. Some faculty do it well, many don't. But my point is that when you have a person working with you closely, uh, they need to be taking things away that builds their skill set, that builds their self-confidence repertoire. I've always encouraged people to be extraordinarily open with me Mm -hmm. there, there is no wrong answer. There is no uh, statement you can make that I'm going to take hold against you. So I'm going to listen to you explain why we should do it this way. Exactly. And I'm going to potentially not pick that way, <laughs> but I'm going to explain to you why. And I want you to sign on. That. I don't want you to, to, to fight me going forward here if we've made this decision. But I'm going to make sure you know why I made the decision I did if it's not your specific recommendation I'm blessing. That's, that is not easy sometimes for people to really understand uh, that there's a time to express yourself openly and fully about which way we should go in solving a particular problem or achieving a certain goal. But ultimately, when decisions made, we need to buy on. To that exactly get on with it and get it done the best we possibly can and that's a hard thing for some people to accept that 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 their particular direction isn't the one that got got picked and but yet they're neat necessary for success yeah, yeah. so they got to buy into it and i've achieved that by doing two things first of all listening to them making sure they knew they could tell me exactly what they thought but then explaining to them even though it took a while sometimes to do it, explain to them, here's why we're going to do it a different way. Here's why. And I surrounded myself with people who weren't alike. They weren't uniform. They would have a variety of opinion. I wanted diversity of opinion. I wanted mm -hmm. people with different perspectives to come forward and tell me what they thought we should do. And then my job was to try to sort through all that and make sense of it and make a decision. Uh, the best person this I've ever seen is a guy named Robert Gates. Uh, you know, Bob Harden. Victory Gates. I came to AM as a vice president, and uh, he had had a long career in the CIA and uh, ended up as director of the CIA, ultimately, under Bush 41. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he retired from that, came to AM uh, as the interim dean at the Bush School here at, at the request of the president. And uh, was doing that when there was a search for a new president. And he wasn't the, the person people thought 
would be hired. <laughs> uh, somebody else was the leading candidate. And, uh, but uh, at least the majority of the board saw something in Bob that they wanted to, to keep at A&M and they made him the president. And, uh, you know, no leader's perfect. I can talk about a lot of things that, that Bob and I mm -hmm. didn't agree on, that's okay. But I never saw a guy better at taking in lots of input, mm -hmm. sorting through it, and then generating an output from that. And I attribute that to being an analyst for 30 years in the CIA. This guy was taking in lots of data mm -hmm. uh, and trying to sort through it and make sense of it. Initially, as just an analyst himself at the lowest levels and passing up his thoughts to his higher ups in the organization. But ultimately, he rose to the top of the heap. Yes. Uh, but he had this quintessential ability to analyze, take in data, make sense of it, and spit out outcomes. That to me was was an exceptional, you know, sort of capability he had as a leader here at Texas A&M that I appreciated and wish I wish I could do better at. But he certainly was good at what he did, and uh, A&M was blessed by his being here for for about four years as president. Uh, I didn't follow him immediately, but I came along was one between us basically. Uh, Dr. Morano was between us, and uh, but I was his vice president for a while uh, with the responsibility of running a branch campus in Galveston. But uh, we spent a lot of time together uh, and uh, learned a lot by just observing him uh, at staff meetings, especially taking in data, making yes. sense of it, and putting out the desired outcomes. It was pretty impressive to watch that. So that you you bring some excellent points because uh, as I as our world has evolved and we're getting, you know, recent graduates and, you know, people that are developing into uh, our career, one of my observations has been oftentimes, uh, you know, we live in a world where everybody wants to be heard, every opinion should matter and blah, 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 blah. And oftentimes uh, I, I share, you know, similar things that you said, I have a boss and typically he'll ask, Kim, what do you think? And I'll provide my opinion and rationale. But at the end of the day, he's earned the right to take all that information and go left or right, depending on what he chooses or what he or she chooses. And I say, you know, I'm OK with that because I understand that my role and my, my colleague's role is to provide that data. It's not to overly debate. And once a decision, a decision has been made, we all respect that decision because that's our role in supporting our leader. And one of the challenges that I found is a lot of folks these days just don't seem to understand that, just don't seem to, to grasp that, yes, you want to be heard, but we'll hear you. We'll take it into consideration. But being heard does not mean that it's going to be actionable. We're going to take the particular action that, that you've recommended. So from your uh, vantage point, how do we help uh, professionals growing in our world of advancement uh, grasp that concept and understand that it is not about i don't uh, you know we don't respect your opinion it's not about you don't matter you do matter that's why you we have you on your team and that's what we're asking for your feedback but understand that a leader has earned the right to chart the course for the organization how how do we help folks uh, get there well i already said one half of what i'll say to you and that is i'll repeat it in brief you got to listen to them make sure you listen to them and then make sure you explain, not necessarily in gross detail, but explain you know, why we're going forward. It's, it's easiest for you as a leader just to say, okay, I've heard you all, 
we're going to do this, walk out of the room. Uh, that's what you see in the military a lot sometimes. Mm-hmm. But not even the most successful military leaders get by with that. Uh, you want to have people working with you, not against you, or just even alongside you, want to be with you. And so you, you do that by making sure they understand why. Now, sometimes it takes two parts. In a public setting with your team, you may say, well, I've heard you guys, and I've considered these decisions here, and we're going to do it this way, and this is why. And you spend a moment or two talking about why. Mm-hmm. But if you have a particularly uh, sensitive individual who has contributed to the conversation, and we, we haven't apparently accepted their particular direction, mm-hmm. uh, it's best to hold them back one day, close the door, and spend some serious time with them and give them a little bit of more insight into why you made the decision, why their particular recommendation wasn't accepted. I didn't do that a lot, but I did it enough so they could know that it wasn't cavalier. I was not simply rejecting out of hand their ideas, but there were legitimate reasons why I didn't want to go down the pathway they charted for us. And once you've had that conversation once or twice with them in a privacy where there's clearly nothing to be gained by by uh by me trying to show how brilliant i am with a, with other members of the team it's all between us <laughs> once they've been through that once or twice with you uh then they become much more trusting of you and they then know that there's a good reason why their idea wasn't the one you accepted but they understand too you did hear them uh, and you appreciate what they said and you're glad they said it and of course, given enough time, almost certainly at some point in time, you're going to accept their advice. Otherwise, they have no business being on the team. Uh, so they'll get their wins down the road there, and that'll be fine. In front of their colleagues, they'll be they'll be given the uh, the gold star, and they're they're happy with oh, that. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I've always found it important to hold them back occasionally, and in a private conversation, delve into exactly why uh, their idea wasn't the one I wanted to run with. And after a couple of times doing that, you'll find that they really begin to understand they are appreciated, they are accepted, that they are valuable to the team, even though their particular idea on a particular day didn't get, didn't get the day to, to go forward and, and be the one picked. Uh, that's how I can suggest you might think about this, uh, to kind of divide up your feedback in two ways. Mm-hmm. One's global for the whole team to hear why we're doing this, and that's usually pretty terse. But then you may need to spend the time uh, it takes to go back and take this person aside privately and talk about it in much more detail. That takes time. That's one of the hardest things to do because you're busy as can be if you're the leader. And taking that half hour extra to go do that uh, means everybody else gets backed up that day and things don't go quite as Mm -hmm. well as you want them to. But it's definitely worth it, in my opinion, to take that extra time ever so often. Uh, with a member of your team and make sure they know personally how appreciated they are uh, by you and, and how their, their, their inputs are very valuable, even if they don't get their way in a particular circumstance. As Simon Sinek said this afternoon, I was listening to one of his podcasts. He said, you know, communicate with people the way they want to be communicated to. If somebody doesn't want to be bothered in the morning, know that they don't like to be bothered, live in their space. And then when the time is right, go have a conversation with them. So as we, as we are getting to towards the end of our podcast here, uh, I want to leave our listeners with uh, two key takeaways from our conversation. I know listening, the power of listening is, uh, is one of them. Uh, what are the, what are the takeaway do you have for, for our listeners? Well, 
again, I think it's important to realize that your job as a leader is not just to lead, but to also uh, help those who work with you to take the pathway they want to take to success. They, you know, give them more than they give you. you know, you're going to demand a lot of them, but realize you owe them something back. You know, the paycheck isn't isn't it. Nope. <laughs> you owe them back the kind of mentorship and advice delivered it in the right way for them individually that helps them improve and achieve their long-term goals, which may not be with you. No, it may not. May won't, probably won't be with you, mm-hmm. but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So your job is to give them something back. It's not to take only, it's also to give. And sometimes you give more, you take. That's okay. That's okay. Truly okay. Well, there you have it. I'm Kim Naoni. Thanks for tuning in to Mentorship Matters.